Our Lord once told a follower to go, sell, give to the poor, and follow me. We each have false gods to which we give homage and from which we are to detach ourselves so that we can more truly follow him. But following him and his disciples in itself is a detachment. On this day between Good Friday and Easter, how and where are we to follow him? Scripture says, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. What does this mean for our Lord and for us? Well, this is what we'll discuss today on Deep in Scripture. Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Hall. We're joining together on this program. Hello, Ken. How are you doing? Good to, good to see you. Marcus. Well, it's good, Ken. Uh, and uh, as I have mentioned here on the program, Ken and I are are taking advantage of technology, he in Illinois and me in Ohio, and we're, we like to, to join on this program to discuss Scripture. And our goal is to, for ourselves, hear what Scripture is calling us to do, uh, but also we hope that we're doing this with you. And let me thank those of you that are listening for your kind words and your emails and, and other social networking comments. Uh, we, we're glad this program is an encouragement to you. And we want to invite those of you listening to join us in this by going to www.deepinscripture.com. You'll hear the archives of the programs. But if you'd like to send us an email, you can do it at dis at chnetwork.org. And also be sure to subscribe to the CH Network Facebook page or on Twitter at CH Network. We'd love to have your comments and your thoughts. To a certain extent, Ken and I, we don't have this thing manuscripted. We're just looking at a scripture, uh, looking at it historically, theologically, mostly, uh, you know, what are the words of scripture teaching us? And often we're choosing passages that uh, pose a bit of a conundrum, right, Ken? I mean, this passage we're looking at today. Uh, is yeah, a, this is one of the biggest conundrums of all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's a good passage, Jim. But it's so appropriate for Holy Saturday because uh, it speaks about Christ's descent into hell and what that meant and what it doesn't mean and how he did it and all of that. So it's very valuable for us to reflect on this today. Yeah, tradition has it. And, and we proclaim every time uh, that we recite the Apostles' Creed, we have that little phrase, descended into hell. And I know that modern translations have 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 messed with that a little bit, are uncomfortable with it, descended into Hades, descended to the dead, um, and even, you know, the Nicene Creed doesn't even have it. Uh, you know, so what do we do with, mm-hmm. with this phrase? What does it mean? Where'd the idea come from? Mm-hmm. What does it say about our Lord? And maybe on this Holy Saturday, what does it say to us? And we presume uh, that it comes from a text in First Peter 3.19, which simply is this, the scriptures say, uh, being made alive in the Spirit, and then verse 19, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And, and we're going to look at that passage today, and we're going to follow the, the, the procedure we did last week, Ken, in which we first before we look directly at that verse, we don't want to take it out of context. So we take a big step back and we look at the wider context 
and then slowly approach the verse very cautiously, because this is mm-hmm. not an easy passage. Cautiously look at mm-hmm. the verse, and then once we've arrived on the verse, then we'll look at it more intimately, word by word, phrase by phrase, with the goal of asking, okay, what does this mean for us? So, Ken, mm-hmm. you know, once again, maybe in a reminder to our audience, as we said last week, talk about, especially with a verse like this, what's the importance of looking at it in the context of the wider message of sacred tradition? Well, it's interesting. I was reminded about this, the importance of the, the, the whole church and the sacred tradition in uh, rereading some things in Augustine this past week because Augustine there talks about how when you have different interpretations of Scripture, it's the wisdom of the church in the past that guides us in limiting those things which are acceptable. A lot of things, people especially outside the church, but even within the church, they don't always understand that the church doesn't try to nail a passage down to say, oh, this is exactly what it means. What it usually does is simply set some boundaries around it and says, okay, if you're within these boundaries, um, these particular boundaries, it's okay. You can look at it this way or that way. But what it means is that as we approach it, Scripture, we always approach it with a sense of the rule of faith that is around us, that we're a part of, that we're in the context of, and that is the church. And that is because God didn't give me or you individually the right of interpretation. He gave the whole church that right, particularly in its pastors, the bishops and the Holy Father in in Rome. Um, So we never approach Scripture with a blank slate, a tabula rasa. We always approach it with some type of preconceptions, and we need to make sure that those are part of the church. First Peter is clearly a part of the canon. Um, I know that Second Peter, the very beginning. Second Peter, for a while was questioned in in some of the earlier listings, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but not First Peter. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right, and and part of the reason I think is because when you read First Peter very carefully, it's so consonant with the rest of the. The teachings of the New Testament. In other words, they they fit together like hand and glove, plus the fact that it is from the Prince of the Apostles, uh, the one chosen by our Lord to lead the College of the Apostles uh, in in leading the church. So, um, and what's also interesting about 1 Peter is that it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and this is in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect, to those who are um, sojourners and then he lists the places, Pontus, Cappadocia, Galatia. These are all areas in Asia Minor, or what is today Turkey. In other words, these would have been churches that are largely populated by Gentile Christians. So here's the Jewish um, apostle leading uh, uh, Gentile Christians by his writing. I mean, there's a sense if we think about, when we always have to be careful of reading back into the first century, the structure that developed over the ages. But we know in the early church fathers that the, uh, that the continuity of the structure of the church that our Lord established involved bishops and deacons, and we see the mm-hmm. priesthood, we see that. So in a sense, if we compare this to the writings of John, we see John in Revelation talking about the seven churches 
Um, and then we see Peter here. So one could see that it seems like there's a group of churches that the different apostles have taken under their wing to to mm-hmm. minister to. I mean, there's there's an extent yeah. in which these are the particular churches that that Peter, the apostle to the Jews, is more directly ministering to. And then John has mm-hmm. a different group of of churches that we see listed in in the first part of Revelation. Well, that certainly would be the precedent for what, what took place later, where there's a bishop over a particular area, has many different churches, but his his authority is restricted to that area, uh, with the exception, of course, of the of the, the pope being the, the universal pastor in the church. All right, so there's no question about Peter historically in First Peter, excuse me, in the the canon. Now let's let's dig in a little closer, and we have this verse, which is in what was designated as the third chapter of Peter. We all know that when the the chapters and verses were added many centuries later into the text, but uh, we have the wisdom of that uh, that pastor many years later that saw the breakup of the the book into chapters and verses. And so we have chapter 3, and maybe more particularly verses 13 through 22 uh, in the whole book of First Peter. Ken, how do you see the significance of what Peter was drawing us to in that third chapter in relationship to the whole book of First Peter? Well, I, I, I tend to look at it as uh, just as, as anyone can read and say that it's emphasizing the uh, the importance of bearing up as Christian under suffering, the uh, a large part of the letter has to deal with that. But then, what it, the way that it does it is interesting. It's saying don't don't think of suffering as something strange. Uh, think of it as, as something that you are sharing with Christ in. And so, go about your daily lives. Uh, the daily lives of raising a family, of being Christians in a pagan culture, and do all that uh, with the realization that um, that suffering for and with Christ is a good thing. For example, he says that in verse 14, uh, but if you suffer for the sake of righteousness or justice, you are blessed. Now, Many modern people wouldn't think of suffering as being blessed, but what he's saying is, is don't suffer from your own wrong, from your evil doing, but suffer because of Christ. And if you do that, then in a way you're being united to him. That's why he says in verse 15, sanctify the Lord Christ in your heart. You know, can I look at my particular uh, addition that I have here in front of me, and I notice at some point over the years in my ministry, I've circled key words in First Peter, um, and they jump out at me now as I kind of look as an overview. And what we see, as you said earlier, that one of the reasons that this book was never questioned is that the theology of this book is so uh, reminiscent, so parallel to the other writings, especially of Paul. And, mm-hmm. the, you know, the verses that jump out at me are the usual Verses we have, of course, in beginning God the Father and the Spirit and Jesus Christ. We see the Trinity right in that first paragraph. You know, then we see the words hope and faith and love and believe and fear the Lord and born anew and the salvation of your souls. 
the grace, angels. We see the usual and key terms that define our faith. Um, Again, the faith, hope, and love are the common phrases throughout. Born anew, baptism, uh, that you may grow up into salvation, your good deeds, how you live. You know, love the brotherhood, excuse me, love the brotherhood, um, the, the hidden person of the heart, the tender, you know, wonderful, beautiful expressions of our faith, of this, mm-hmm. essentially, of Peter this bishop, which I believe is writing this sermon to the newly baptized, helping them understand what Christ has done in their life. And then therefore, yeah. as Paul did in the second half of Ephesians, calling them to live their baptism out in love for the brotherhood, but reminding them at that time in which they live, it will require suffering in parallel with Christ, which gets us right back to today, is what our baptisms mean today, as we live out faith, hope, and love in the fear of the Lord and the suffering that comes our way in obedience to Christ. Well, that's really beautiful, Marcus, the way you outlined that, the way that you enthusiastically talk about the, the, the greatness, the, the magnificence of our faith. And that's underscored by Peter uh, in several places. It's the contrast between the ages before Christ came into the world and the ages and the now that he has come. He says this, for example, that, that the salvation that we've experienced, he says in chapter 1, verse 10, this is what, what the prophets long, they sought and they searched out about what time or place God would come, you know, into the world. This is the, these are the things that angels long to look into. And so the salvation which Christ has brought us is naturally to be celebrated, especially during this triduum that we're in right now, that Christ is here. He's brought redemption to the world. He's enlightened the world with his grace. And that means there's no reason for despair. We're going to suffer. We're going to have anxieties. But there's no reason for despair because Christ is the victor over it all. Yeah, there's that that phrase later, which would in itself be a program, uh, in which he says in verse 13, chapter 4, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. I think you mentioned that earlier. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. reflecting on Holy Saturday. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. He's, Peter is writing this to Christians who've been born again yeah. through baptism and faith, grace and love, and but he's assuming and presuming that, as he says in verse 16, if, if one suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but under that name let him glorify God. You know, the suffering which which we experience, and, and if we envision... Even the apostles on the day in which we are celebrating today, yesterday he died, Good Friday, he's in mm-hmm. the grave, and they're in mm-hmm. Saturday. They don't know yet what we know. Yeah. yeah. They don't know yet yeah. what we know is coming tomorrow on Sunday. All they know yeah. is he's gone, and he's in a grave, yeah. and, the, and the guards yeah. have been posted around that tomb to make sure that what you know that <laughs> that what he said doesn't happen or that his disciples are going to come and steal him and say he rose from the dead yeah <laughs> so I mean but <laughs> that says in Matthew yeah yeah and there that's today and and what's Jesus doing today we know <laughs> what happens tomorrow but they didn't 
And so that unique suffering that they went through today, we are called to sit back and appreciate, to reflect on. Uh, well, you've just expressed the beauty of the uh, of what the church fathers say about salvation. You know, Marcus, you and I both know from some of our backgrounds that people would often say that Jesus suffered on the cross because I don't have to, so I don't have to suffer. But but the church fathers' theology of salvation is that because Jesus suffered on the cross, He asked us to enter into that same experience. And Saint Basil the Great, uh, the great late fourth century bishop of Caesarea. In, uh, in Asia Minor says that our descent into hell, our descent into hell, takes place when we imitate the burial of Christ by our baptism. So we experience that same death that he experiences, except in our case it's a death to our own sin, it's a death to ourself, so that we might live in and through him. I was at a parish this last Sunday, and it happened to be Palm Sunday, and we were traveling. And we went to a parish I'd never been to before. And there, as is often the custom in our contemporary churches, in the front of the church was a crucifix, but it was a, a resurrection crucifix. And it has the body of our Lord in uh, his victorious resurrection. It's not the portrayal of Christ in his suffering crucifixion. It's in his re- uh, victorious resurrection. And I'm not going to be critical of that. My only comment, though, is that for many Christians, we want to jump too quickly from Good Friday to Sunday. We want to jump as quickly as possible from the cross to the resurrection, even in our own lives. And Mm -hmm. is it not true, Ken, that the reason, even if you think why Paul says that he wants to preach Christ crucified. And in one of my favorite passages, which, you know, Ken, we're going to have to deal with one of these days on this program, which is a, a conundrum as much as this passage today is, and that's in uh, Galatians 3, 1, when he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, whatever St. Paul meant by that verse. But it seems to me that the point of Holy Saturday is to challenge us to pause between the crucifixion and the resurrection and to ask ourselves, what difference does the death and suffering of our Lord mean for our ongoing walk with Jesus Christ? And especially reflecting, as this passage we're looking at says, that our Lord was not resting between Friday and Sunday. He was actively proclaiming the gospel. Well, you know, this, uh, this passage that you've, now that you've, you've introduced it to us so so thoroughly, um, verse 19, it says in which, that is in which he went to preach to the spirits in prison. Um, the, the church has, uh, taken that at least one stream of it um, that this is his descent into hell not to redeem those that are lost but to redeem those of the Old Testament who the Holy Fathers as St. Thomas calls them 
of the Old Testament who are awaiting the resurrection, awaiting the, the redemption of Christ. And he went and he proclaimed to them. And he uses an interesting word. He says he illumined them. He illumined all of hell. Even those that are lost, he, he illumined them so that they would understand the redemption that they are not going to be able to, to partake of. Whereas the Holy Fathers, who were living in faith but died in faith waiting, he went to uh, to redeem them. So you're right. Uh, the idea of Jesus just laying in a tomb is not what the church has seen here. The church has seen that he was actively still redeeming the world by his being in the, his body being in the tomb on Holy Saturday. The the context of this passage. We're going to take a break in a little bit, Ken. But before we do, it'll it's about five minutes away. Before we get there. So I'm going to hold back a little bit before we jump right into the intimacy of this passage till after the break. So let's just let's just take another step back just for a second. What I'd like mm-hmm. to do is in this context of First Peter three, this paragraph, this wonderful paragraph from thirteen through twenty-two, which is the context of suffering, um, which is a good passage even to look at on Holy Saturday to ask ourselves. But it, it, in the middle of there. It says that we're always to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence, and keep your conscience clear so that when you are abused, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That is in the context of this passage we're looking at. So, you know, we see modeled our Lord going and preaching the this the gospel to those that have been hoping and waiting and wishing we presume um, in their resur- in their I, we, I shouldn't say resurrected form but in their in their spiritual um, it says mm-hmm. the spirits in prison and so we we see their spiritual existence after death awaiting the big and we're going to talk later after but but that that presents for us a challenge for us to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls us to account for the hope that is in us. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this model is that you and I, we all are surrounded by people that are hoping for something, some message, where they are in the midst of where they are. They're hoping for something that we apparently believe that we have. And we're called to share it. Well, you know, I think it's interesting the way Peter phrases this. He says that um, be ready to give a defense or an, um, an explanation to everyone who asks an account for the hope that is in you. And particularly Pope Benedict in his encyclical space, Salvi, Saved by Hope, the words out of Romans 8, uh, emphasized that this is one of the true marks of a Christian or a mark of the true Christian, that is, that's a person who possesses hope. And meaning that that we do not look at life through the uh, despairing uh, realism that all is all is lost, but we look at rather the difficulties, the problems, the questions of life that is illuminated by the gospel, so that the gospel gives us a perspective on life that produces hope within us. Hope is not something that we can directly possess. We possess it because we have, we've imbibed the gospel. 
the good news of Jesus Christ. When we imbibe the gospel, it produces hope within us. In 1 Corinthians 3, or excuse me, 13, where Paul says, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is mm-hmm. love. And the idea is that if by grace and the mercy of God, when we pass from this life on to the next, it's our faith and grace that enable our eternal uh, transition into the beatific vision of God, our faith, hope, and love. But once we've arrived, if by God's mercy, faith and hope are done, and we live in love eternal with the presence of God. Now, but that's because Christ in his death and resurrection conquered death once and for all and resurrected. So, if we take this passage on this Holy Saturday, do we envision, therefore, did the early fathers, did did they envision what's meant here by the spirits in prison? We're going to look at this in a second, but were they living in hope? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that transformed transformed the world was by, by the Christian gospel was precisely because they did have hope. If you look at the history of the church in sufficient detail, you'll discover that there were many, many problems in every generation of Christians. But still, through all of that, they projected to the world a kind of hope. And that's why people came to the church for baptism. That's why they came to the church to know Christ and to receive his sacraments. Because they saw these Christians as facing the same problems that they did, but with a different attitude, an attitude of hope or an attitude of confidence in the ultimate victory, that Christ, because he had won that victory already. Yeah, as they existed, after they passed, you know, Moses, uh, uh, Noah, you know, David, all of these men and women of God in the Old Testament, and they were awaiting awaiting the fulfillment mm-hmm. of, of Christ. So until he visits yeah. them, they are living, existing in hope for the coming. By his grace, when we pass, we will exist not in hope, but in charity, in union with the, <laughs> yes. to be a different existence. That's what he's preaching That's to right. these men. Now we're going to break here, Ken, and come back and talk about that. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. I'm Marcus Grodi with Kenneth Howell. See you in a bit. Dr. Kenneth Howell has two wonderful books on the early church fathers, translations from the Greek as well as commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. The second book is on the letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache. These were two of the most important documents from the earliest days of the church. For Christians today, these earliest writings harken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. If you are interested in these books by Dr. Kenneth Howell or purchasing them, go to the store link at chnetwork.com. 
www.thepeopleshow.org. Thank you. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are interested in learning more about our Catholic faith, or if you know someone who is interested in becoming Catholic, please visit our website at www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi. I'm joined with Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, we're looking today, a couple things thrown together. Uh, one, our focus is on 1 Peter 3.19, in which uh, Peter, Apostle Peter writes uh, that our Lord having been made alive in the spirit uh, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So we're looking at what does this passage mean? Uh, and Ken, we've looked a little bit at historically uh, through the early church fathers, through the, the great theologians of the past like Augustine. And uh, and now we're going to look at the passage itself, but, but also we're throwing into this uh, a couple of things. We proclaim in the Apostles' Creed that he descended into hell. What does that mean? What does this passage mean in that context? And then on this Holy Saturday, the, the idea is, okay, is this communicating what we believe our Lord was experiencing between the death on Friday on the cross and his resurrection tomorrow on Easter morn? And then maybe finally, what does it mean for us in imitation of Christ? So Ken, now let's look at this passage. It seems to me there's three key issues that jump out in this passage, just the passage alone, and that is number one, when it says, in the spirit in which he went. So what was the form, traditionally how we understand the form of our Lord in this passage? Mm -hmm. Number two, the spirits in prison, who are these folk? And then number three, it says, he went and preached. So what was it that he did? This is all summarized in our, that phrase, you know, he descended into hell. So Ken, why don't you begin there with the first point, hmm. in the spirit in which he went. Yeah, it's, a, it's of course, it's a puzzling thing. And um, St. Thomas uh, Aquinas in the Summa Theologica, again reminding our readers that uh, there's very, hardly a question that a Christian could ask that he didn't address in that great work. But one of the, he asked this very question, well then, if Christ's body was in the tomb, uh, how could he go into hell? And how could he go into Hades or whatever it was, the, the, the realm of the dead? Uh, to preach. Now it says that he went there in the spirit. 
that he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. We presume the spirit here means a soul. And um, so St. So Thomas says that Jesus' body remained in the tomb. There was no... It, his body didn't go into into this realm of the dead where there are, but he went in there through his, his divine person. Remember that in the doctrine of the incarnation, it's the assumed nature, the human nature that is joined to a divine person. And that assumed nature with its human nature was left, as it were, in his body in the tomb. By his divine nature, he went into... Uh, he went into hell and he preached to the spirits in prison. So, uh, so he was actively seeking the redemption of those who were in the place of waiting for, um, for the, the coming of the Messiah. Ken, does do the early church writers, therefore, and of course, we, you know, audience, as Ken said earlier, the church doesn't give a definitive. Uh, interpretation of this difficult passage but sets boundaries which is the rule of faith so does that mean ken that the mm. church has traditionally seen that in other words our lord went into the the realm where the old testament patriarchs were awaiting his coming in the form that they were awaiting his coming yeah, it, it it that's what I think it implies. No, it means that he did not go. And again, St. Thomas deals with this question because the question was be, uh, well, what about those that were had so badly rebelled against God that they were lost forever? He says, no, he didn't go. The Christ did not go into that into to to save those who are lost, but he went into the into the the realm of the dead where those were waiting who had died in faith uh, in the Old Testament, and they were waiting in faith for the coming of Messiah. I think it's interesting that the author of Hebrews um, implies something similar in chapter 11 when he's speaking about the great saints of the Old Testament, uh, people like Gideon and Samson and David and Samuel and all of the prophets. He then comes to a conclusion. He says, now all of these, it was testified about them through their faith that they did not obtain the promise, well, the promise that they had been given, the promise of the coming Messiah, we presume that means, because God had something better in mind for them so that they could not be complete without us. In other words, we in the new covenant are completing the salvation history that was begun in the Old Testament. That was only possible because of Christ and what he did on the cross. But that cross was taken, the, the uh, forgiveness of the cross was taken and applied to those Old Testament saints so that they could enter into heaven with us as well. Well, this brings us to a, another important point about this. When we, if we were to try and make a list of, well, okay, let's do our best job at guessing who these uh, spirits in prison were, uh, uh, and it brings us to the topic of, uh, as both you and I know from when we were evangelicals, there was always this distinction made between the the old way of getting in union with God was through our works, 
And of course, through our works didn't work, so we were given faith. And by faith alone, we are Mm -hmm. saved. So when we look back at those prisoners in heaven, okay, who were they and what did they do? Was it because they had faith alone or was it because they were good folk? I mean, this was before the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, before the Mm -hmm. cross. So are these only those people that had lived a perfect life? Uh, were they only those people that depended solely on their faith, as Martin Luther may have put it? Or, you know, how do we look back and, and discern the people that would have been qualified <laughs> to be awaiting the coming of the Messiah? Well, it seems to me that the best answer to that is found in Hebrews chapter 11, because there... The author makes two important points relevant to what you just said. One is that the it lists these great uh, Old Testament saints, as it were, uh, starting with Abraham, actually going back before Abraham, Cain and Abel, talking about Abel offering a more perfect sacrifice. And then it speaks about Noah and Abraham and Moses. And it goes through this whole litany of saints, as it were, to say that these all... <clears throat> And over and over again, the phrase is there, by faith they did this, by faith they did that. And by faith, notice what it's saying. It was not their own works, but it was by trusting God. But it's also saying that that faith worked itself out in love. That faith wasn't just a, a just trust. It was a trust that led to action. So Abraham did sacrifice, was willing to anyway, uh, he looked for a building or looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He, he, he had sex with his wife so that she could bear, even though they were both past the age of childbearing. So there was this combination of faith and works or faith and action that the faithful of the Old Testament, and undoubtedly there must be millions of those in the Old Testament, faithful servants of God we never heard about at all. But there they were as faithful sons and daughters of Israel. What you and I have both come to discover, Ken, by the mercy of God, is the, the fullness of the church, um, which means that when we look at Scripture, it isn't just our interpretation of Scripture alone, but we recognize that there's a much wider message, the beauty of the wider message, which also rec- helps us recognize that theology and understanding our faith are not always a matter of this or that, either this or that. In other words, either faith or works, but that there's the mysterious both and, the the mystery of the relationship, the two-sided coin of faith and works. And it seems to me, Ken, that in fact in this very paragraph, as we're trying to understand in the mystery of God's mercy and grace, those men and women long before Christ, yet we're looking forward to the Messiah, looking forward to the Christ through their faith, maybe incomplete faith. They, they weren't even sure, as we see in the Old Testament, that they understood the resurrection, that they understood what would happen mm-hmm. in Sheol. In the, in the land of the shades, the shadows. They weren't sure, so they looked forward. But maybe the best expression of that is in this very paragraph in verse 15. 
in which he said, in your hearts, reverence Christ as Lord. I mean, the, the, the two-sided coin of faith and works is expressed in that word. In your hearts, reverence Christ as Lord. Moses, Noah, David, Solomon, uh, the, the woman in uh, Jericho, um, you know, uh, that hung up oh, the yeah. red thread for, uh, for Israel, you know, who was saved. You know, it, to the best of their reflection on God, it was in their hearts, reverencing, looking forward to Christ. And then it was through the revelation that Peter said, you are the Christ. There's the yeah. beginning of that reverence. Uh, mm-hmm. Mary and Martha, Martha at the, at the tomb of Lazarus, you know, you are the Christ. That's the key to seeing who it is that our Lord went to visit are those from the beginning of time that by the mercy of God's message reverenced him and looked forward to his coming. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned Ram there, the the prostitute of Jericho who by all accounts of course would be considered an outcast, but deep in her heart she she reverenced the Lord. And she knew, she said to the to the spies that came into Jericho, I know that the Lord God has given you this land, which is a form in her day, her context, of reverencing the Messiah, the Christ. So, uh, yeah, it's it, what it means is clearly is that we we have the we have people that lived with not much knowledge, but an awful lot of faith and hope. I mean, we even have Job, who, in the words of Handel and the Messiah, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Yeah. You know, we have this reverencing in their heart. And it's a hope. It isn't a fulfilled faith yet. They were looking forward, and they died looking forward and hoping uh, for the coming. That's to whom Christ visited. And then it says, okay, so Christ in that mysterious form in his soul, visiting those that were awaiting him, that's on Holy Saturday, we traditionally speak. Mm-hmm. And he meets them. And it says then, mm-hmm. the third issue is he went and preached. So what does he do, Ken? I mean, does he get there, he makes them sit in a bunch of chairs, and he gets a little podium. <laughs> <laughs> he gets a podium, and he holds a big leather black Bible in his hand, and he preached to them. Is that what he did? <laughs> well, I, I think, uh, yeah, we always got to visualize it in terms of the way we think, right? But, uh, you know, actually, I think Peter gives us some wisdom here because he goes on in chapter 4. If you read on from this passage uh, where he speaks, then he goes on to speak about um, Christ's suffering in chapter 4, verse 1, in the flesh. But he's saying, arm yourselves, be, be on your guard, just in the same way. And then he says, because people are going to give an account for their lives. He says in verse 5, those that will give account to him is ready to judge, prepared to judge the living and the dead. Now, the next verse is very interesting. This is 4, 6. For this purpose, it was preached to the dead. Now, the Greek word euangelizomai that's used there, there's several words for preaching, proclamation, angelo, anangelo, uh, katangelo is another one. 
Um, there's another word, keruso. But this is the word euangelizomai, which means to proclaim the good news. So when you ask, what did he say to them? Well, I think verse 6 gives us something of a clue. To the dead, he preached the good news, that they would be judged according to men in their bodies, but in according to God, they would be judged in their spirit. Now, the world was truly in their hearts. So I think this preaching to the dead was the preaching of the liberation. The liberation is here. It's come. There's a beautiful story, at least uh, I think uh, many people may remember the famous Broadway musical um, Fiddler on the Roof. And at one point, Rectavia, the main character, and his, his, his son-in-law are standing there talking about, because they're being expelled from their, from their home of Anatevka by the, the Russian uh, rulers. And the son-in-law kind of musingly looks out at the fields and says, oh, wouldn't this be a good time for the Messiah to come? And I think that expresses the feeling that the Old Testament saints had wouldn't this be a good time for the Messiah to come? Well, on Holy Saturday, he came and he redeemed them once and for all their spirits from that place of the dead and took them into union with himself in paradise. I suppose you wonder whether Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, all the great prophets who had been pointing forward with great hope to the coming Messiah, uh, sometimes preaching to the Israelites saying that um, you are to seek the the welfare of the place to which you are presently exiled. Yeah. You, you know, those that want to go back right now said, no, you've got you've to live in your suffering for a time, right. but there will come a time when there'll be a new covenant. Uh, the old is gone, the new has come. You'll be given new hearts. All this will be fulfilled but none of this came in their lifetime. And so they're waiting, they're waiting, they look forward to what you've just said. And you wonder, you know, while they're waiting uh, for the, you know, all these days, didn't, didn't our Lord all this time help them know, help them understand, you know, centuries, centuries, waiting and waiting. But then again, the mystery, as we try and interpret this passage, we see uh, almost like, I almost see an interesting parallel to what we're going to celebrate on Easter night when all the apostles are gathered in the upper room, wondering and waiting, mm-hmm. and our Lord enters through the door. Yeah. I mean, that's almost yeah. parallel with what the, the great spirits in prison are awaiting, and all of a sudden, there he is. Well, they're cowering, you know, I think the account there in, in the Gospel of John is that they're cowering in fear for the Jews. They've locked the doors and Jesus appears to them and he is the sign of, of their hope and of life being different. When you mentioned about Jeremiah and all the prophets waiting, that same imagery of being a pilgrim in a foreign land uh, is used by Peter at the very opening of his letter that we are pilgrims and we are strangers in this land. And I think a person that has their heart set upon heaven does feel very deeply this sense of not quite being at home yet. And that's what they must have felt, the Old Testament um, holy people, the the tzedakim, the righteous, as they were waiting for the Messiah. But it also describes our life, too, as we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies uh, in this world. 
Um, especially when you look at older people and the difficulties that they have sometimes, you begin to see how much how much they long for a better life. And that's a natural yearning, but especially those that have been graced with baptism and the grace of the sacraments, they long for it even more. So it's it's very much a situation that what they experience in the Old Testament is also to some degree what we experience. Yeah, maybe an attitude of Holy Saturday is all those passages, like you said, the the, the prophets that are are calling them to patiently wait. Uh, it the, it's common, it's common, but wait. Um, yeah. The apostles gathered, the, they received all the promises. Are they trusting? Are they believing what Christ said? Yeah. Uh, but they're waiting for it to come. The New Testament epistles often have this idea that Christ is coming again soon in your lifetime. Wait, be patient, mm-hmm. rejoice now, but it's coming soon. Paul himself struggling, I'm not sure, he's, he said, I'm not sure whether I'd rather be here or there. I'm ready to go now. Uh, you know, are, yeah. uh, you know, are, <laughs> yeah, we, are we ready? Are we willing if he came tonight um yeah. are we living in hope um or fear and trembling have yeah. we trusted our lord jesus yeah that's so that is so important because uh, it you know the church very wisely says um in various places that the, the, we all know as catholic of being in the church. And that's why you and I and many other adults in the last 25 years that were raised in Protestantism, we've become members of the church. But remember that the Second Vatican Council reminds us that the church must also be in us. That is to say that we cannot be saved without faith, hope, and love. And so the realities of Christ's redemption and gospel must be within our hearts. And that's what it means to really be prepared to heaven for heaven. And I often wonder, and I don't know that I don't think there's an answer to this question, but I often wonder if somebody like Saint Therese of Lisieux, who died at 24 years of age of tuberculosis, on the physical plane, you could say, well, she died of tuberculosis, but on a deeper spiritual plane, could it be that she was ready to go? <laughs> That's yeah. to say that she was so holy that she was just ready to go. And the reason why we're lingering here is because we're not quite ready to go just yet? Possibly. Well, I, Ken, you and I have both been in positions where we've been called to preach sermons at funerals of difficult Funerals. Mm, cases. Yeah, yeah, we know right. that. And yet before us in the congregation are mourning family and friends. We're asking the question, mm-hmm. why did this loved one go now? Uh, why mm-hmm. so young? Or why so quickly? And as you've just said, that sometimes it's still hard to say this to a whole group of people from a pulpit, but sometimes... Privately, as we're sitting trying to help a person understand why someone was taken, is we say, well, in the mercy of God, maybe it was his time. Um, Mm -hmm. When is it our time? Um, God knows what is best for us. And I believe that the key of living life in joy is being grateful to every moment because every moment is a gift. We don't have a right to live a long life. 
That's a myth that our culture tries to tell us. Every moment is a gift that we are to be grateful for. Yeah, that is that is uh, that is so true, and even the moments that are difficult, the moments, uh, and that's what you find in. That's why I think the author of Hebrews gives us this great litany of the saints in the Old Testament, is to show that they remained faithful and patient and persevering in the midst of great difficulty. Those times of difficulty are also, in a sense, intensified in the case of the Christian because Christ has come. He's going to bring about the consummation, but it isn't quite here yet. So we have to have the same dispositions of patience, of um, of uh, perseverance, and waiting on the Lord for the right time, the right place, whether that's dying individually or whether that's the consummation of history. What I think our text today gives us a sign of hope is that the Lord in all of those centuries leading up to his coming into the world he didn't forget those Old Testament saints he knew he was going to go and preach to them in prison (laughs) they were in prison he was going to go release them so whatever imprisonment we tend to feel at this point we know our Lord has um, promised that he will liberate us from that there's a section in First John that says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and we receive from him whatever we ask because we keep his commandments to do what pleases us. The reason I thought about that is our hearts can discourage us. We can get discouraged in fear. But through the discouragements of our hearts, we recognize our hearts don't condemn us because of what our Lord has done for us in his love that gives us the foundation for our hope as we look to the future. Well, you you summarized so great in such a great way there something. At one time when I, after I'd become a Catholic for several years, a good Protestant friend that I'd known before asked me the question, because he was worried about my salvation, I said, what are you going to say to Jesus when you get there? And I said, Lord, have mercy. (laughs) That's all that I can say. (laughs) Have mercy on me, a sinner. Yeah, and, uh, you know, as the Old Testament saints even said, he said, you know, it's not sacrifices so much I want, but I want a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Exactly. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That's to be our attitude on this holy Saturday. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. And thank you, Ken, for helping us on the program. <laughs> Enjoyed it very much. All right, thank you, and thank you all for joining us. I, again, go to deepinscripture.com to find out more about the program, Coming Home Network. Send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. We'd love to hear from you. Join us on Facebook and Twitter. Let's study the Scripture together so we can walk behind our Lord together. God bless you. See you next week.